I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. We'll continue our studies on the Sermon on the Mount. We're just about through. We got maybe another week or two, and then we'll be done with the study. I think this is number 38 in the series. We're in Matthew chapter 7, and tonight, beginning verse 21 through verse 23. Now, before I read it, let me say this. Matthew 7 is not a casual chapter in the Bible. Of all the chapters that are in the New Testament in any book, it's probably one of the most challenging, if not to me, the most challenging chapter of any book in the Scriptures. In other words, you can't just read this and casually glance over it without giving thought to it, and especially how you fit or you understand your relationship to what you just read. And when you look at it that way, it, it is a challenge. The last three weeks, we talked about false prophets, and it's so easy to be false. It is so easy to mislead people. It is not hard to do. People, there are people who seem to want to be misled. And the church has forever, down through history, the church has forever had that component of deception lodged in it somewhere waiting to spring. Even Paul in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, he spoke about men who lie and wait to deceive. They're there. They're lying in wait. Or Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said, after my departure shall grievous wolves come into your flock to scatter the flock or come into your midst to scatter the flock. It's like, how do they get here? How does this happen? But the devil's always had people, always had that certain individual who is susceptible to, to the work of deception, always has. And I guess he always will. That's why we are taught, we should be taught, the Bible, the New Testament is full of it, of teachings that are warnings. Beware, take heed, <clears throat> and pay attention. Be not deceived. In the last days, this will happen. And we're watching it happen. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Perilous times have come. The world is in turmoil. It's about to reel to and fro. I mean, these times are here now, and therefore we have to understand that while we're going to be facing all kinds of deceptions, we don't know if it's deceptive or not unless we're taught the truth. Because Jesus uses one thing and one thing only to make you free, and that's the Word of God. And he said, you shall know the truth, not know about it, not be familiar with it, but he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth is designed to make you free. So that when, when the deceiver comes around, you will, a little flag, as we say, a little flag will go up, a little signal will be sent to your heart, and you'll know something's not right. Because that word in you is, is in there to do that. It's in there to keep you and... and make you aware of right and wrong. And so, as I said, you read Matthew 7 and things like this come up and you become aware, especially when you teach it or when you study it, you become aware that there's a lot in here. Now, tonight, tonight is probably a section of Scripture that has been the basis for debate for centuries since the church started, since the Bible was first printed back in the 1200s and this subject tonight is one we'll have to take our time with. Let me read it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I can't think of a more dreadful thing to ever hear 
than the words that Jesus would say, depart from me. Because there's only two places you can wind up in the end. It's an either-or situation, either with Christ or without Christ, either with him in heaven or apart from him in hell or outer darkness, however you want to describe it, the flaming fire, outer darkness. It's either-or. And he said that there will be a lot of people in that day, the judgment day, because this is obviously what he's referencing. There'll be a lot of people on that judgment day who say, wait a minute, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. I, I spent my whole life doing things right. I mean, I preached, I prophesied, went on this, did that. I tried, I gave money, I, I, I worked around and, and even worked miracles. I mean, how could you not have something of God? Some power has to operate in you. God has to do something to drive out death. I mean, we were there, Lord. We preached in your streets. And he said, I never knew you. How can this be? Now, all of us ponder this. Again, this is that part of the Bible. You come to this, you think, huh. They called him Lord, Lord, which we wanted to call him Lord, Lord. We want him to be our master and our Lord. We want to be involved in any kind of work he gives us to do, whether it's helping people or healing people. He said these signs shall follow those who believe, and one of them is they'll lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. While we don't see much of that, that's still in the Bible. If somebody's going to do it. We can question that for the rest of our life, but it's still in there when you get through questioning it. There's nothing wrong with God's side. And there's people that have probably done it. I can think of one right off the top of my head. About, how about Judas? Did Judas go out two by two? Was he perhaps in that company that came back and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in thy name? And he was the son of perdition. How could this be? How could there be somebody, that, a false prophet, that could preach so wonderfully, so eloquently, and so thoroughly about something, and yet at the same time be an adulterer? Could this possibly be? Well, of course it can be. How could a prophet or a dreamer of dreams give you a sign or a wonder like in Deuteronomy 13, and it come to pass? It actually happened just like he said. It snowed on the 4th of July or whatever he said. Some outstanding, wow. But what he begins to preach you misleads you. Jesus said, this will be a test for you. It'll test you to see where your heart is. Is it with loyalty to God and his word? He calls that loving the Lord. Or will it be following something that everybody's so hungry for, to see things or to watch things or to be around? Whoa, because we like to be entertained like that. We like to see that. We're not abnormal people. We just, it's just natural. But you have to be careful. He said, they'll say, Lord, Lord, look what we did. And he said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquities. Those are terrible things. I think the worst thing that can ever be said to a man is depart from me. So the great debate, the great debate that has happened through the centuries, the lines were drawn, departures from each other's fellowship has been made over how then is a man saved? For example, is a man saved only by faith? Is a man saved only by works? Or is a man saved by both faith and works? And the lines, again, like I've said, I've, I've been around various aspects of this, studied it a lot uh, for a long, long time, and have a fair idea about what people are saying or where people's positions are, what, where their hearts are about how this is saved. Because for one who says it's faith only, then what did he mean here but he that doeth? I mean, there's obviously more than just a confession of what you believe. Look at salvation. I think there are probably three aspects to it. I think I can say this, you judge it. I think salvation begins with the new birth. Would you agree? The beginning of God's saving ways, his salvation begins with the new birth. 
a time in which God approaches you or his spirit approaches you and, and you're made aware of your sinfulness. You're made aware of your sinfulness in such a way that you cannot escape the thought that you are a sinner and you're assigned the place where sinners go and you cannot escape it. You cannot undo what you've done. You've made choices because we live by choices. You made a lot of wrong choices in your life, done a lot of wrong things, and, and the judgment on the consequence of those wrong decisions is that you mount, you must perish. And yet your gracious and wonderful Heavenly Father grants or gives to you repentance. It's a gift. It's godly sorrow that brings repentance. Remember that in 2 Corinthians? Sorrow that comes from God upon somebody that he's going to save. They begin to realize their sinful state. They don't want to stay in that sinful state, so they seek God for forgiveness. It's not just a little thing, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry for what I did yesterday. I'm, I'm sorry. This is more of a passionate plea, a cry for mercy. God, forgive me. Or like the one fellow in the Bible said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Couldn't even lift up his head to God. He was so ashamed of the way he'd lived in his life and his, and his sinfulness and his sinful behavior, his sinful nature that he just, oh, God. So God begins there, and what he does is he puts in you his life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the first Adam brought us death. The second Adam brought life because he is called, a second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, is called a life-giving spirit. So spirit of Christ, as Romans 8 speaks about, spirit of Christ comes in you and brings life. You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So that's what brought you life. Or as James wrote, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save. That brings us into second phase. You're born again. You belong to God. You know nothing and you're ignorant. And you know, in a nice way. I know you are. I'm talking about the ones that aren't here. We know very little about the kingdom of God because what we're going to learn, if it works or if it's real, will be given by revelation anyway. And so God brings you to him. And phase two is the life you live. Now that you're born again, this is the way you live. This is the way you walk. Isn't there something in the Bible about walking in it? This is the way walking in it. And so you begin to live that way. So the life you're living now is what we call working out your salvation. It's living saved. I'm aware of it. I am learning about it. I am adjusting to it. I am walking on his terms and not mine. Because if salvation is anything, it has to be living on God's terms. Your ways failed. His ways won't. Now, back to the new birth. Is it true that no man can birth himself. That unless God does this, it can't get done. It won't get done. So when you're born again, it's something that happens instantly. And it's the beginning of a saved life. So when you are living saved, you are walking in the light that God gives you we're not perfect. We often fail. I, I know I have. I've messed up five, six, seven, too much, too many times. And one of the benefits of being saved is that we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the faithful, that if any of us sin, he will forgive us of our sin. Does he not? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I thank God for that because we do stumble along the way. But if a righteous man falls, God will lift him up. So there's a saved life. That's the second thing. And then there's the third phase in which Jesus comes and your body is changed. We usually refer to the rapture or whatever. Some people believe it. That a lot of people don't, I do. And when Jesus comes after his people, you're caught up to meet him in the air, so shall we be changed, and this mortal was 
Corinthians says, shall put on immortality and will become as he is. And our body will be a heavenly. It'll still look the same. We'll identify each other. It won't be the same. I haven't had one yet, but uh, I will. But it'll be a body that's like his. And so this is what salvation will be like. You remember Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So faith has got to work its way in there, not only as something you did once, but something that continues on. We, the just shall live this way. We walk by faith and not by sight. We can't see God. We don't, I don't, I don't see him every day and face to face. I haven't heard him audibly speak to me. I've never touched him. I've never had a physical relationship with him. I am entirely at the mercy of what I read about him. I have to believe this is true. This is what's called walking by faith. It's taking God at a word which everybody wants to challenge in the world as to whether or not it's valid. And yet you're surrendering yourself to something that people say, well, how do you know it's true? And yet I don't know that it's true as far as proving it. But I choose as an act of my will, because this is how I live, I choose to believe this word is true. So in this way, I believe God intended for a man to be saved and to live. Now take three things that I mentioned a while ago, faith, works, or faith and works. Faith. Is a man saved by faith alone? Now don't answer me. Because to a lot of people, faith means going back to the new birth. Can a man only be born again by faith? Obviously, he has to believe. There's no other way to do it. So when you're born again, you were born again because you believed something. Hopefully not because you felt something or saw something, but because you believed something. You believe what is not in the realm of natural, but it's supernatural. It's something that the new birth, he said, comes down from above. It happens like the wind blowing. You don't know where the wind came from because you can't see it, but you can tell what it does. You can see the effect of, well, the same thing happened to us. So is it all faith? I mean, what did Paul write in Ephesians 2? You have to agree with this. For by grace, through faith, are you saved? Not of works, lest any man would boast. So if we were limited to one verse of Scripture here, we would say this, works have nothing to do with salvation. It is entirely in the realm of faith. Faith meaning, again, to most people, what you mentally agree with, what you mentally grasp, what you mentally wrap yourself around that God has said, if I can with my mind agree to what he said, I'm saved. Now, I think there's more to it than that, but that's, we're starting there with this thing about faith. In Acts 16, you remember the story of the jailer, the Philippian jailer? He came out in verse 30 and 31. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember that? Because he thought there was something you must do. If I'm going to be saved or brought to the Lord initially, say to be born again and come into the kingdom and the ownership of God and have his seal on my life, what do I do? Give me something to do. You know what the answer was? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So believe. What does believe mean? Believe to a lot of people. There's more to it than this, but I'm just taking positions here. To a lot of people, to believe is nothing more than to accept as true the statements that are made in Scripture. And if God says something is so, you say, well, I agree to that. If they say, is, uh, does it mean in here where it says genuine Moroccan leather? Is that, yeah, I agree with that. There are people whose relationship to God is a systematic thing. It's based on accepting statements the Bible says with your mind as being true. 
it doesn't really factor in how you live, though all should say, well, we ought to, we ought to, we ought to live a certain way better than we did. But uh, the Bible doesn't say anything you do can save you. Now, it is true there's nothing you can do to be born again. You can't do anything to get born again, can you? You cannot, by anything you do, merit or earn the new birth, which is the very beginning of salvation. You've got to get there first, but you can't get there. You've got to be brought there. It's all because you believe what has already been done for you by whom? Jesus. Jesus has already taken your place in judgment, secured your salvation for you, verified it last Sunday when they raised him from the dead or whenever they raised him from the dead. The greatest single most important fact in human history was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing can supersede that. That was the seal of approval on a life that was stated to be dying for sinners. And if he was not the true thing, he would never have been raised from the dead. But the resurrection was a seal of approval on his life. Therefore, to believe in him is to receive what he brought. And you can only get it by him giving it. Amen. You say, well, how does all this relate to what you're talking about? Hold on. Hold on. We'll get you there. So you're born again, and you're walking by faith, but you started out with a faith that you could do nothing about. You could only surrender. I'm lost in my sins. I cannot be saved unless God saves me, and he does. The Bible said he has saved us with the holy calling. Many, many places in Scripture how that God, what he did, he did because only he could. Now, why he saved me, or why he saved you, I have no idea. I have no idea. Why would God save you? Was there something about you that he needed in a little concrete building here in Kentucky? In this cathedral of tomorrow? Was there some special talent that you had, such a voice should be heard in his church? Woo! I mean, we got to have that. Is that why he saved you? Did he save you because you were wealthy or well-to-do? Oh, I need that money in my church. No. Well, he needs you because you were strong and able. Somebody's got to pick up the chairs and tables after everybody's through, you know, everybody's gone. No. Churches are full of people that aren't saved. They've heard just what I'm saying. They could repeat it as I said, but they're not saved. They've never been born again because their life has never changed. But why would he change your life? Why would God save people? Is it to honor and exalt the work of Jesus? That's one, just one good reason. I would rather like to think that Jesus saved me and you because he loved us. Why? I have no idea. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, if you remember the Roman road, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A greater love is no man than that, that a man would lay down his life for others. So faith alone has its merit in the Scripture, but when you talk about faith only and faith alone, it must go back to the new birth. Because when you go from the new birth to the first day of your walk with God or with Christ, the walk of faith and newness of life, it means that things are opened up to you in the second phase of your life that have never been before. But you cannot say that if I just start doing all these things, if I find out all the things I'm supposed to do, I can work my way into heaven. I mean, there are religious groups that believe that your salvation is by works. And that if you don't do enough of them, I guess you could light some candles and make it. But there's a lot of religious cults, a lot of groups that believe that you're saved if you do a lot. There's people who have mental, their mind is like that. They believe they're saved because they're doing right things. A young man I knew years ago who had a problem with us talking about uh, God blessing us because we were his, not because we had done anything, 
but because we belong to him and therefore the heavens was open to us. We could come boldly to the throne of grace and we could ask and receive. He had a problem with that because his uh, aunt and uncle or grandpa, whoever, I've shared this before, they labored and worked and struggled in a little, I guess, Nazarene, Methodist, whatever type of little church they were in their whole life. And they never had anything. They were never well, but Oh, they read their Bible all the time, and he cut the wood for the stove back in those days and all this and all of that, but he never had anything. And how then can you say that you can just believe and God will bless you when these people look at all the things they did? They never got anything. Well, see, he was basing his merit before God and with God on the basis of what he's doing. If I'm doing right and I'm trying hard and I'm praying every day or I fast once a week or I, whatever I do, then when I get to the end, it'll be, but Lord, look what I did for you. Because they think, works only people think that they have to earn their salvation. They have to knock on a lot of doors or get baptized for a lot of people or something, but they feel like they have to do a lot of things in order to merit or earn salvation. So a man is not saved because he works, even though, even though we're created for that. Remember the same verse we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace through faith are you saved, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember that? Well, then it goes on to say, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we're not saved by our works, so what are the works for? Works can't save you. What are the works for? Well, it's letting your light so shine before the world that they may see your your good works and glorify God. That's what they do. Paul even wrote one time that your support of another church that was going through some hard time, he said, I commend you for doing this, and when I come, I want to pick that collection up so I can take it over to them, and your gift to them will cause much glory or glorifying of God to come. They'll go, oh, praise the Lord. Isn't that what we do when we get blessed? Praise the Lord. I see a brother here, guy, I'm a lawnmower. He said, praise the Lord. As a man gets him a new wife, says, praise the Lord. Gets her a new husband, praise the Lord. They just keep it up. Praise the Lord. Because that's what we do when we're thankful and God blesses us. But that won't save you. That's a response from the indwelling Christ in you to open your mouth and thank God. Because that's the way it works. Praise the Lord. Thanking the Lord. Works is also mentioned in Philippians 2. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What do you do with that? What do you mean, work out your own salvation? I didn't think we were saved by works. Well, Philippians 2 doesn't say that you earn your salvation by what you do. It simply says, if you're saved, if you're born again, demonstrate it by the way you live. I don't know of anybody in the world who could oppose that if they're, if they're Christian and both sides of their brain works. I cannot imagine anybody having a problem with that. If you have had this time of change, you were born again. Does born again mean become new? Regeneration. Regenerate from palingenesia. It means again to be born. Or again to start. And you start again. Every All things become new. Do they or not? There is only one way that I can think of tonight that we will eventually know if all things are made new in any of our lives, and it's how we live. When I was growing up, I wasn't saved. I was kind of socially nice, rowdy. I went to church and sang in the choir, but uh, I had a bad heart. I did. You could do all the outward things you wanted to do, 
You could do all the little church things. I had to go to Sunday school class. My mother made I even went so much I had some pins for faithful attendance. But there was no time in my childhood, there was never a day in my life that I had a relationship with Jesus. There were never a day I was trying to live right. I used to have a philosophy, I think, when I was a kid. Well, I'm better than most. I'm not as bad as the guys I run around with. You know, they don't even go to church. And the only difference between me and them was that I did. When I did what they did, I went to church on Sunday. Had a lot of guilty feelings, but did nothing about it because I couldn't. I could not do anything about it because God didn't give me that. So what do we do? While we're born again by faith, there's more to what we're doing tonight than just our past. Because salvation is in three, in three tenses, past, present, and future. It starts there. It remains until the end. Jesus is going to judge people, is he? Does he not say, does it not say here that at the end uh, he issues a depart from me? Well, it's on the basis of what? Works, how people live, the choices they made, what you did with your life, whether you're by yourself and nobody can see you, whether you're in a crowd. He knows your heart. What about faith and works? Because this has been the great debate. The debate down through the ages, especially during the Reformation and on forward, when, when there were Bibles to read, the English Bible the, 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 had been printed. The first major printing of any book in the world was the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. And then it got better than that, the English Bible, and then revisions came. And then the average man could read the Bible, and they could learn for themselves. And then the more people learned, the more the lights came on, the more aware they became. Then people started debating and arguing. Then we got this church, this church. We used to have one, now we got a bunch. But everybody started reading and started thinking, started challenging. Some would say, well, I'm saved only by faith. See, I say with my mouth what the Bible says is true, and therefore I'm in. I raised my hand at a, at a revival meeting once. I'm saved. They told me I was saved. They told me that was it. They told me there was not a thing more I could do. Not another thing I have to do, because if I have to do anything, whether it's baptism or confess with my mouth, if I have to do that to be saved, then it's works. And I don't believe in any of that. I remember hearing a man on the radio one day, pretty well-known man. He said that there's absolutely nothing you can do to be saved, not even repent. And I remember my flags, I didn't know I had so many flags. Man, it's like birds flying. <laughs> Little flags popped up, and I thought... I know what you're saying. I know what you're trying to hold to. I knew that, but I said, that, that's not true. That's not true. You're, while the Bible may be speaking of the new birth, the beginning, you're talking about the life you're supposed to live. And the only way you can evidence the inward life is by the outward expression. It doesn't take you long. We just, learned, we just read about it. It doesn't take you long to find out what kind of tree you're looking at. If it's an apple tree, it bears apples. If it's a good tree, the fruit's good. If it's a bad tree, the fruit is bad. This is how we know. This will be the basis of God's judgment. He'll look at him and say, well, you lived your life. You made choices because we live by, by choices. You, you made bad decisions. The consequences of your bad decision is eternal judgment. What a terrible waste of a man's life to know it's coming and not do anything about it. But a lot of people don't do anything about it because they don't believe they have to. Do you see the deception here? I think it's deception. But faith and works, you know, James, the little book of James, which in the early days when they were putting together the scriptures, the canon of scripture, what would be accepted as legitimate and not putting other books in there because they weren't legitimate. They weren't harmonizing with these books that we have. They were not too sure about the book of James. Maybe it's because of chapter 2 in James where it says faith without works is dead. Or he said, you know, you say you have faith, another man has works. He said, I'll show you my faith by what? By my works. In other words, if you have faith in God, it'll be evidenced by the choices you make. It's as simple as that. If I told my wife, 
Bonnie, I love you. If I told her that, she would do what she's doing now. That's nice. Now, she hears it enough that she's not sitting over there beside herself, but she would say, well, good. But what if I never showed it? What if I said, I love you, and then, you know, ignored her and left her out of things that we would normally do together, go places, and I didn't want, you know, didn't want her around, didn't want to. What would she do with, with my words? I'm saying the right thing, but what am I doing? The wrong thing. Your words are good. Your preaching is good. All the enticing words of man's wisdom is so desirable in the church. Preaching good sermons. But Lord, we preached in your streets. That's good. People got saved because you preached. That's right. People get saved by the bunches when even a false prophet preaches. Because it's not the man that saves people. It's believing the word that the man preaches. And they get saved by listening to the word. But if you don't live the life yourself, I don't care what you preach, where you go, it's like verse 23. I never knew you. We never had a relationship. There was never a connection. You learned things about Christianity. You hooked up in a crowd of like-minded people. You did a lot of things. You were busy with a lot of religious activity. But you and I, we never had that relationship from which knowledge comes. And so I never knew you depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's a terrible thing to experience. If you say you love somebody, if you say you love church, if you say then the only way we know it is if you do it. If you say, I love Jesus, well, it'll show up, won't it? You'll love his people. Now, maybe a deeper question is, instead of faith and works, Maybe a more legitimate question is this. Is Jesus Savior or Lord? Is Jesus Savior or Lord? If I say Jesus is Savior, what am I saying? Well, he comes to save. Savior, savior means one who saves from any form of, of danger or destruction or any degree of evil. That's what a Savior does. Didn't Jesus come to save us and redeem us, drag us out of the pit, the, the miry clay, and cellar? didn't he do that? So he is our Savior, isn't he? Oh, is this, does Lord mean the same thing? Lord, by definition, is one who controls, one who is in charge, not by force, but by consent. He doesn't make me do right. If he made me do right, I wouldn't have to try to do anything because I wouldn't be able to help myself. He doesn't make me do anything. But he gives me the way to walk, and then he gives me a will to choose that way. And God can, listen, as far as me being agreeable with the Lord, God can be very persuasible. God can lean on a, on a person who is dragging his feet. He can lean on a person really good. I think it's called chast uh, chastisement. That's it, chastisement. And he can do that in order to get your attention and to make you know you better line up. See, he doesn't have to do that, does he? But the fact of it is, if he doesn't lean on us like that, we'll let go because we're naturally geared that way. But when the Lord comes into your life, Lord, L-O-R-D, when our Savior becomes your Lord by your choice, and you agree to his terms, you struggle with them, but you agree to his terms to walk that way, then he begins to lead you in a way that you've never been before, in a way that you can't walk in if he doesn't. <clears throat> Jesus is Lord of my life. You know what? If he's not Lord, then is he Savior? Did he save you to keep you as you were? Did he save you to let you remain as you were? But if he saved you and he put his life inside of you, is it not to effect a change? Well, then is it possible with our text here that there's a lot of people who learn to preach 
maybe got involved in some things and really got anointed. And yet they never had in their heart a desire to just serve the Lord and to be useful to him, but begin to use the things of God for personal gain. Could that ever be? Turn your television on some Sunday or some evening, and you'll see. There are people who say the right things and speak the right things, all for personal gain or to get a following or for notoriety or something. I know I keep saying that because, well, it stays true. It still is, and I said it, and it still is now. But Jesus, Jesus is uh, Lord of your life. You've given control to him of your life. Isn't that why we find ourselves, if we do, turning our other cheek? Is that not why we do things his way when everybody's going to persecute us for it? Well, of course it is. He's taken over. He's not making you do right. He's simply opening your eyes that night you came to church, that morning you came to church, that time you sit down to read your Bible, you begin to read some things that, oh, wow. Well, I don't know about that. But you see, this is how it works. Now, when I was a kid growing up, there was more talk about evangelists than there was teachers. And evangelists, as I have known them, the few that I have known or the many that I have known, they seemed like their blessing was in how many hands they could get raised, how many people could come forward. And they would advertise or testify later to that meeting by saying, oh, we had 100 souls saved. What do you mean? You had 100 souls born again. Hopefully. How do you know they're born again? See how I am? I, I'm like this. How do you know they're born again? How many times have we gotten glad about somebody that raised their hands and come crying and sobbing? And next thing you know, they're back in the world, back in the old ways. What, what was wrong with me? Well, they weren't born again. You can't have something from heaven drop into your heart and change your life as God describes a change and remain as you were. You're different. You're a new creature in Christ. Help me. Old things are passed away. Behold. Woo! <clears throat> Behold. All things become new. They Listen, they either do or they don't. I remember the time praying with a guy who just cried and cried, and we praying with this guy, and he confessing his fault. He, this guy knew how to pray. That's the last time I ever saw him. I'm not hard, hardened, but I have met a lot of people with religious experiences who didn't pan out, who didn't turn out, and whom you couldn't trust. They were not good daddies, good mamas, didn't pay their bills, half-hearted members of a church, difficult, moody. Something is really, really wrong when you stay like that. Something's wrong. When God changes a man's heart, it doesn't mean he changed his mind or his head. A salvationist does this. But when I've got a new life down here on the inside of me, I'm geared different than I used to be. I still have to make decisions. My mind still opposes the things that God says because my mind has to be renewed to come into harmony or a harmonious agreement with God. He said, your words in Isaiah 55, your words are not my words. Your ways are not my ways. How do we come together? How do we mesh? What we're doing now, we come and we hear. We pray for light to come. And so we begin to Go through the process of learning. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may take notes in the meeting. No, teach me thy way that I may walk in thy truth. If I don't have the word, I can't walk this way. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Remember that? Now, if you don't have a heart 
to receive that, you've never been born again. Is it okay to say that? I believe that's true. I don't think everybody gets it as fast as, you know, accelerates their growth as fast as everybody else. I think there are some who naturally drag their feet. They might have had experiences as a child in which it's hard to grasp some of the new things that God says. Maybe they had an occupation that made, like, they might have been a nurse or something, have a hard time with healing things. Or maybe they were uh, something else, and some of the things that God said, maybe they were military. And how can you pray for your enemies? I, I'm, I'm designed to shoot them. It's not easy to receive that. Some people, I could, it was easy for me. Others, it might be a struggle. God knows who he saved when he saved them. Didn't he? There was not a thing about any of us that he didn't know all about. So you can tell him all about yourself, but I promise you, he already knows. It's good for you to tell it, though, to get it off your chest. But back to the evangelists, the, the revivalists, the evangelists would come to town, preach well. They had fire. A lot of the, the good ones had fire. And the, God used those words to affect a lot of people. But there was a lot of people who felt remorse for their sins, and their, not for their sins so much, but for their lives and their mistakes. And they came forward and they cried and they asked God to save them. And six months later, or maybe six weeks later, or maybe six days later, they, were, they got over it and they were back in their sin. Then another evangelist comes to the fall meeting, and they come forward again. They come forward every year. They're up and they're down. Got saved, got lost. Got saved, got lost, they say. Now, you don't get saved and get lost. You get saved. Amen. You either have a heart to do right or you don't. And, and I do believe tonight that there are many ministerially geared people who never got it. They learned these ways. They became attached to a system of religion or spirituality, and they learned the routine. They learned the language. They learned how to say things. They might have gone on a journey somewhere to some foreign country, and, and, and they just shared what they shared, and people got you know, people responded to it. They don't know anything about you. They heard your words, and so they responded to those words. And a guy comes back and says, you know what, I, I can do this. So he begins to do it. There's always a crowd waiting for you. Just like the one I shared the other day. I had a, a church of 15,000 people. 15,000. How many is that? I don't know how you pastor that many people. I don't know how you could know their names. If one of them wanted to testify, he'd be about half a mile away. How could you testify in the church? Well, I don't know. It's not my business. It's not my problem. But 15,000 people, and then he was caught with his homosexual friend. How could that? And he preached against that type of thing and while he was doing it. Could that, is that possible? Is it? I'm sure at some point in this man's life he raised his hand that he wept about something, that he struggled with these things in his closet, but he never got turned around. Because I do believe there is enough power in what God does to turn around anything in anybody's life and change anything there is wrong with you that God can fix it that there is enough divine power in what in that act of God in bringing you to him so that you are without excuse if you don't overcome. Overcoming. There's something of a soldier in every born-again Christian. There's a warrior. There's something inside of you that the, that the hint of a battle, that's the sound of a sword. That's that shield. That's that face guard. They're ready for battle. They fight. They fight. They didn't just hold up their hand and then live the rest of their life. Well, I don't know why it doesn't work for me. I can't understand. Maybe they haven't been taught. They have hearts that are right for the Lord. They just haven't learned much. Maybe they've never been taught much. Because you have the evangelist. And then in the late 60s, you had a move of God in America for teachers. The teachers came along. That was new. I remember that. 
The preacher could preach for a half hour. He could say a lot. He could say in a half hour what I struggled with for an hour. The evangelist could come, and I, I tried that some. I thought I was an evangelist the first year out in my life from school teaching. I was in the field. I felt like I was in a field, too. It used to really bother me that I could try my best and nobody ever got saved. I couldn't get somebody to come forward if I had a lasso with me. I'd want to just sometimes plead with them to come to Jesus. It's through. And my preacher, I even got here. I went to a meeting one time, never been before, and I asked my pastor, Brother John, can I borrow a couple of your sermons? I mean, the ones that I listen to and go, whoa, whoa. let me preach that one. So I got that one down, put it in my version, rehearsed it, rehearsed it, and went to this meeting and bored these folks to tears. I remember one time Bonnie asked me, she said, <laughs> I'm going to tell on you. One night she said, I don't know who you were tonight, but I like you better. Because there's a number of people to listen to back in those days. And, you know, if somebody impressed you, you wanted to say that the way you heard it. She said, I don't know who you were tonight, but I like you better. All right. So I'm stuck with who I am, I guess. But anyway, anyway, the teachers came along. And you know what the goal of teachers were that I found? It's to open our eyes, to turn us from darkness to light and to the power of God. Never heard of it, never knew it. This is not, I don't think this is taught much in most seminaries, probably taught in some. But to take a congregation of saved people that the evangelists threw in there, and all those people out there need to be taught. Here's what they look like. Now, some of you don't know what that is. I bet some of you do. This is a rock. <laughs> you know where this rock came from? It came from the world out there. The evangelist went out there. He had a chisel in one hand. That was the word of God. He had a hammer, his anointing in the other hand. God sent him out there, and he just, without respect of who he was talking to, he put the, bam, and boy, a big chunk fell off of there. And then the meeting was over. He got all of his rock together and brought them to the local pastor and said, here, brother, here's some blessings for you. And there they are. You can't get along with them. They're all hung up on something. So what's the teacher do? What does the teacher do? Systematically, you start teaching. You start mapping out and making these people aware that inside every rock, there's a treasure. We have these treasures in these hidden vessels. We're just a bunch of gnarled old rocks. And boy, the preacher comes along and he starts working on them and teaching and hollering at them. Next thing you know, a man makes a good decision. He cleans up one part of his life. He can now fit in a building block that God is doing, you know, these living stones. Oh, you can now join one, one side of him. God help you if you get around the other side of him. We call it the wrong side. So the preacher can't just let that go and get by with that. You know, you say, man, I got to teach on this area. I got to teach in this area. So he starts teaching about this and about that and and, you know, this one right here, that's about giving. Oh, boy. But it's the work of God in God's people to soften those hard parts of your life that were formed in this world. So the work of the Spirit of God begins to come in here and deal with you about stuff. You used to be one way. Now, look, you got two good sides on you now. Don't get above him. Don't get below him. You get hurt. You keep on going. Our lives begin to change. At some point, we become useful to the Lord. We become somebody that God can use to help other people. Because what God has brought into you, you are now able to bring into other people. Whoever you're joined with, every joint supplies something, doesn't it? 
And Ephesians 4 said, this is how the body is built up. Not by the preacher, not by some clever speaker, but by people living the life that God is showing them how to live. That brings us to the next part. This is the will of God. The will of God. Remember this, he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into heaven, but he that what? Doeth the will. You cannot escape that. Whether we're Methabaptist Presbycostals here tonight, you cannot escape this. That there's nothing more supreme for a Christian than the will of God. You cannot fabricate something that is good because the Bible said that which seemeth good to a man is a way of death. Are we there? So we begin to realize that the only way I can really please God and arrive at a good end in my life is to learn his will and do his will. That's supreme. That verse about the renewing of the mind, remember that? He said, be not fashioned according to this world in Romans 12. But he said, be transformed. Metamorphosis. Changed into another form. It's a process. We call it salvation, but it's the process of becoming like God wants us to become. We weren't, but he starts, and he that started a good work in us shall complete it. Oh, so there is a work going on. What's the work? A transforming work. It happens with the renewing of your mind. You know what the renewing of the mind, the major reason for the renewing of the mind is? Turn to Romans 12. You find out for yourself. Verse 2, the very end of it. Something you have to do. If you're going to walk with the Lord, you've got to do this. Otherwise, you're going to just have a casual Christianity and wind up less than what you should. In my words, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that what? You may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Does your Bible say something similar to that? All of you. Why then does God want me to have my mind renewed? For one reason, so that I can prove for myself what the will of God is. Now listen, if I never prove that, if I never know what it is, then what does my Christianity consist of? What seemeth right? If we just get together and just a bunch of good old boys and good old girls, co-gobs and, and co-gogs, we just decide to get together and think of some really good things to do that, you know, this is nice for us to do this and let's just do that. And I'm sure God will accept that and we'll go to heaven. Well, that won't save you. I think if you're saved, you should be susceptible to whatever God wants you to do, whether it's what I just said or whatever he wants. You have to be willing. But you can't be willing to do the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is. Teach me thy way. His way is his will. What did he say when he taught us to pray in uh, Matthew 6, maybe verse 10? Our Father's art in heaven. I have to say the whole thing. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here on this earth, like it's done up there. You start asking yourself, is it God's will? Is it God's will for me to be well? Well, I could ask you a question. Will you be well in heaven? There'd be no sorrow, no pain. I suppose you will. I know you will. Well, I would like to go ahead and taste the powers of the world to come. I'd like to go ahead and taste the power and experience that. The good word of God. I like for, you know, in Proverbs 4, the word is medicine to my flesh. I'd like to, I'd like to experience that. 
Me and Miss Bonnie, I, I, both of us. I'd like to that to be true. It's been true for 40 plus years now, but I, I, why not all the way? The next 30. <laughs> 30, I'd be 102 years old. Y'all would listen in, though, wouldn't you? This is what his will is for. Turn to 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2. And look at verse 17. 1 John 2 and verse 17. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and what? And the word abides in you. All right? Now go to verse 17. Because of this word's abiding in you, 1 John 2 and verse 17, it's supposed to say, but he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. Does it say that? No, wait a minute. Then who is saved? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, which we should say, but just because you said that doesn't mean you're saved. But he that doeth the will of, of my Father. And he said that those who do the will of God shall abide forever. Look in chapter 4. And verse 19, talking about us suffering because we choose to trust God. And all the harassment we get and the stuff that people say about us and they put you down and talk about you like you're some cult or some weird religious group. Is, would it ever be God's will for you to suffer stuff like that? Well, sure, it will be. It's a test. He said in 1 John 4, 19, he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God trust their souls and so forth. So often it is the will of God that you suffer. Do you think people enjoy listening to that? You come to the house of God and you're told you're going to suffer? Is it possible today that not much is said about in the last days there'll be tribulation? All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution? Would it ever say that? It's a test. It confronts us as a part of our walk, our saving walk. We're confronted with these kind of truths to test and see whether or not we are willing to live as God who is at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, are you willing to go on? Now, let me say this to all of us. We may struggle with some of this. Uh, I don't know. But God, who is not only tolerant and long-suffering, is able to convince his people to go on. He is able to do all of that because, again, God is at work in you. Look in chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, concerning prayer in verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Is that his will? Is this what we're called to do? Is walking by faith, walking in a way that pleases God? Then what do we say if somebody says, I don't have to do that? Well, nobody's going to make you do that for sure. But here's the deal. If you're his, if he really has put inside of you a brand new heart and a brand new spirit, it's like Ezekiel 11 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that you may walk in my ways and keep all my commandments and do them. And I think in chapter 36, he says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. Can he do that? He can do that. I thank God, I think, many times in my life, and I wanted to draw back, little things happen. Somebody comes into your life, a phone call, an event, something comes up, and you get re-inspired, renewed. You ever had that? Reinvigorated. Did he have to do that? God didn't have to do that. Look, God is saving you. The salvation process is working. He simply has singled you out to be his. He's not going to leave you alone. He doesn't have to keep convicting us about things in our life. He doesn't have to keep telling us that, you know, you don't worship me. You're not lauding and praising me. I mean, he could keep saying that, but he doesn't have to. 
but he does because he's going to bring you to a place where he doesn't have to judge us. Let's turn to the communion chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And towards the end of that chapter, in verse 31, in talking about the communion and your view of yourself and your view of what he did, and mainly about how you view other people that God has made his own. The Corinthian church, when they got together for the agape feast, in which they took the communion, the bread and cup, you know the story. There were some over here and some over here and some here. They really didn't care if anybody fellowshiped or had enough or not. They just, they were there. They came together. That's what we're supposed to do. But they didn't come together as the Lord's people because they didn't want to be around each other. They were just in the same area together. And he said, you know, when, when Christ broke the bread, that communion morning or whenever he broke that bread, that, whenever it was, didn't they each get a piece of it? It broke it, let's say, in 12 pieces. 12 people, 11 people ate it. Now, when 11 people ate one loaf, is the loaf still in the room? It's not in the form it once was, but each partaker had a part of that loaf. They are members of his body. One Lord, one loaf, we are partakers of it. We all have a portion of it. That's what we pass the communion elements around. It's your part. He said, now, when you begin to look at people as less than you are and you look down on other people, he said, you're not discerning the Lord's body. Of course, the Lord's body is not just you. It includes all of his people. If you don't see that, then you're guilty of the body and the so forth of the Lord. So he said, that in mind, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. One commentator says, if we saw ourselves as God sees us, and we would not compromise ourselves. We would not cause God to reach a verdict against us. That's a judgment. But look at the next verse. Why God works on us, as I was saying. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. Why? That we should not be condemned with the rest. Is the world condemned? Why will you then not be condemned along with the rest of them? Because God will chasten you, reactivate you, get your thinking turned around, open your eyes. You'll see it right, and you'll do it right because God is able to do that. And he's able to do that with you saying, I will. So that he didn't just mechanically make you do that. Amen. Well, I'm going to stop here. We'll pick it up next week. And I had a good time. I know some of you didn't, but I did because this is true. This is life. This is what Christian life is about. It's the bread. This is bread. This is what we live by. The truth that makes us free is the information that comes into our hearts like bread comes into our mouths. Amen. Close your Bible and stand to your feet. We thank you, Lord, you give us all the weapons that we need to successfully fight the good fight in this life. Thank you for all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.